Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. La Grande Illusion, un aspect encore peu connu de la guerre. C'est, d'après des récits authentiques, la vie des prisonniers de guerre en Allemagne. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The grand illusion is over. Don't shoot. 
We're in Switzerland. La grande illusion avec Jean Gabin. Dita Parlo. Le café est prêt. Pierre Freinet. D'un côté des enfants qui jouent aux soldats, et de l'autre des soldats qui jouent comme des enfants. Et Eric von Streuel. Hi. Welcome back from... Uh... Well, I guess it's not hiatus. <laughs> it's not hiatus, and that's what the the this is podcast magic. That's we right. have not podcasted together in many moons, uh, but thanks to Friday, Ice uh, Cube filled in some blanks for us. Yes, he did. Thank you, Ice. And uh, and so we are back recording, and we are talking. We're starting a new series, <laughs> and uh, we've done longer series in the past. This this one's uh, one of the longer ones. We'll be in this zone for a couple months mm-hmm. but i don't i think it's safe to say correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's safe to say that this is uh the most exhaustive prep work you have ever done <laughs> for any individual series is that fair exhaustive uh prep work that i've ever done and i'm still doing yes <laughs> that is fair to say it's, this is one where uh you've watched 450 movies so that we could talk about 10 of them. <laughs> Do you, can you talk to us a little bit about what this series is and what the hell you've been doing? Oh, dear. Yes. This is, uh, you know, with, with Parasite uh, being the first foreign language film to win Best Picture, uh, you know, it kind of hit a place for us where, like, you know what? There have been 11 films nominated for uh, for the Best Picture award over at the academy awards wouldn't it be fun to do a series now we've talked about one of them we talked about the immigrants in the listener's choice episode several years ago but wouldn't it be fun to look at the other 10 films and kind of explore this whole world of foreign language films getting nominated for best picture so that is the current series and uh, you know it's just it's a really interesting series i think to be jumping into uh since parasite did win um it, it just, I think it is interesting. It highlights the fact that the, in reality, there are actually very few films that have received this recognition. Thus far, there have been 563 films that have been nominated for Best Picture since the uh, creation of the Academy Awards. That is not even 2% of the total of those films that have been foreign language films. Now, it is, I think, fair to say that obviously... The Academy Awards, they were created by the Hollywood studio moguls in the 20s, um, and the intention was to kind of recognize the films in the system that they had created, to create more buzz for those films, to sell more tickets for those films. To that end, I mean, you know, that's kind of how awards are created. There are now different awards all around the world from different organizations they all tend to lean towards specificity, which, which whichever country they're from, um, there are certain types of films, you know, animation or horror, or, uh, you know, there have been rise for, you know, um, film uh, awards for like, you know, the Black Filmmaker Awards, things like that. There's whole varieties of them. But with the Academy Awards, I think it's it's hard to ignore that, you know, sometimes the greatest films aren't necessarily the ones coming out of the the studio system. So 1938, that's where we're kicking off. The first foreign language film gets nominated for best picture. And uh, then over the course, and this was at a time when there wasn't even an Academy Award 
yet for Best Foreign Language Film. That started in 1957. Between 38 and 57, there were some honorary Oscars given to some foreign language films. But, you know, this is a series of films that obviously had to do something really special to kind of get up into that top category of Best Picture when they did. So we're here to look at them, see what we think. Well, now you, okay, that was that was all great, but you didn't at all address... Oh, yeah. I kind of skipped over that whole thing. Your personal craziness, and I think you need to take a little bit of responsibility on the show for the fact that you haven't seen your wife and children in six weeks. (laughs) Oh, well, okay, yes. I ask seriously because it seems like like you you come equipped to have a different kind of conversation, certainly than I do, (laughs) having not done the research, but at least to to talk a little bit about some lessons learned. So just set the stage. How have you you personally approached this series, and and do you have any thoughts, wherever you are, uh, that that would help us sort of kick off? What are we looking for? Um, Well, yeah. So so what I personally did, and I guess that was your initial question, and I just went off on a tangent there. But um, what I did is I, because of the nature of this, I thought, you know, it's going to, it's, We've talked a lot about a, a number of, we've had a lot of series where we've looked at a lot of varieties of films. If I can, I'm, I'm, and if it relates, I'd like to try kind of getting a sense of the perspective in context of that. And so for this particular series, I was like, you know what, I should be able to say, especially since Parasite now, uh, we have had a winner of a foreign language film actually winning, not just the best foreign language, which is now the best international film award, but also best picture. Um, watch all the other films that had been nominated in in these years, these 10 years that we're going to be looking at, to say, was, you know, did the right picture win? Is Grand Illusion, should it have won back in 1938? For So I watched all of the films that they were nominated against, and that's for Best Picture. And in the case where they were also nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, I also watched the films in those categories as well. So... There has been a little bit of movie watching in context of this particular series. You said you're still in the middle of it. Uh, how, I am. How I'm going to have to the end. Are we going to catch uh, up with you? Are you like the George R. R. Martin of, of <laughs> Game of Thrones? <laughs> I'm not quite that bad. No, I'm actually real close. I have, I think, let me check. I have, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more films to watch. Um, that okay. were uh, that's pretty good. It's not too bad, and you know, I think considering that these are all ninety five and later, I think I can get them all watched before uh, before we hit each of those particular years. So Excellent. I think I'm gonna I will be able to be fully um, prepped for our conversation when we get to each of those movies. All right, so that brings us to uh, the Grand Illusion. 1938, uh, directed by Jean Renoir, the filmmaker, the uh, part of the Renoir artistic dynasty. Uh, and it is uh, it, it is a movie that I had never seen. I did not read anything before the movie. Um, and I was surprised at some of the turns that this movie took. I thought it seems like every beat I thought, oh, now I know what I know what this movie is. I get it. And then it turns out I didn't get it. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, it, it was a treat to watch. I have, um, I, I have a few, we'll say quibbles to stay on theme, but, uh, but I, overall I enjoyed it. How did it hit you? 
I I have seen this film um, a number of times over the years since film school when it was first presented to me. I have found with each subsequent viewing, I get more out of it. I find it to be a richer, more powerful film. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting th- things happening within the film. And I just, I, I, I don't know, it strikes me as definitely kind of a, a, a film for the ages, one that I don't think you know, like some of the other films that were nominated for Best Picture in 1938, this is a film that does not necessarily um, feel uh, dated. It feels like a, a something that is going to stand the test of time and will continue finding a way to live on and move forward and become, um, always be relevant, I guess. You know, it's just, I, I just find it to be really um an incredible film and even better than when I watched it last time, which wasn't too far, too long ago. Well, so the film, uh, first watch, you know, it's, it's a prison escape movie. Uh, we get some members of a, a French crew who are, uh, captured and taken to, uh, a German, uh, camp and, uh, it, it, you know, over the course of, you know, subsequent scenes, we get the sense that there is uh, escape afoot. They're digging a tunnel. I thought, oh, t- we're going to dig tunnels and escape from prisons. I, I get that. <laughs> I know what that's like. We've spent some fair time in the sewers. Uh, I know where this is going. Uh, it turns out it's very much uh, more than that. And I think in the experience of being more than that, a story of class, uh, it definitely a story of culture and uh, cultural conflict. It's weirdly a story of uh, I don't I don't even know how to put the the words right. It is uh, th- there is a sense of geniality and politeness applied to uh, you know war crimes and competing sides um, in you know a particularly grim. Uh, you know, world war that I found curious. I, I wasn't quite sure what the ideology of the film was was trying to convey. Um, and so I, I had some fun kind of muscling my way through that. Um, but I left the film feeling a little bit undone. Like the, it, it didn't quite make uh, the statement that I wanted it to make. I, I, whose who's side is the film on? <laughs> well, that's a, you know, I think that's a, an interesting question and certainly something that triggered people when the film came out in the late thirties and then subsequent re-releases because it did get banned by a number of places. Uh, the film is really, I mean, there's a lot of social class in the film. And that was something that uh, Renoir had seen, somebody who, I mean, he actually fought in World War One, and based the kind of the story he had here on a number of stories that he had heard from friends and, and acquaintances that he knew in the time of war. And, uh, you know, he saw a lot of kind of the social class structure, the aristocracy that we have with uh, Bourdieu and uh, Roths, Roths, Rothenstein, the kind of the, the more elite characters. And then we have kind of the working class, uh, but everybody's kind of getting along. Uh, and and so it it was this film that triggered a lot of people because here we have Germans and French kind of getting along with each other, and it just didn't seem appropriate when, I mean, you know, you have to look at a film 
about the period that it takes place in, in this particular case, World War I, but you also have to look at it at the time it gets made. And that's right, right before World War II. And it, I think it triggered a lot of people that this was a film that was showing French people and German people getting along with each other. Germany didn't like this film, you know, for a lot of those reasons. And in fact, when they invaded France, apparently this was one of the things that uh, Goebbels had said was, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but oh, here is cinematic public enemy number one, and uh, apparently ordered the prince to be confiscated and destroyed. And uh, because of the this kind of like friendlier nature of war where it was, you know, there was manners and it was, uh, there was a lot of sympathy for each other. And, um, well, and respect, respect, that's very much what this communicates is the respect of rank. And, and I'm curious how that, you know, why that has aged, we'll say as a, as a curiosity and not a mark of offense for me that, uh, it, it does it does demonstrate overtly that these two sides, these two colonels, can can have the this sort of respect interpersonally when they're face to face, and yet they still the Germans were still able to shoot down their plane. Like they're the same people when they were in the plane that they are now sitting across the dinner table, uh, welcoming them to prison. I found that really interesting. And, and so I, I think part of that curiosity is like when you apply the lens of our current, let's say, social media landscape, how easy is it to hate watch and rant, uh, you know, online? And then when you meet somebody that you might otherwise be, you know, ranting at online, you know, it, it, the, the mark of civility might set in, one would hope. Um, it's uh it, it's the it's the mark of the personal relationship and i think that was an interesting thing that's at work in this movie in 1938 i was surprised to see uh that that sort of perspective yeah you don't see a lot of that actually in like zero dark 30 <laughs> no right <laughs> decidedly right. different tactics decidedly different <laughs> tactics that's that, that's absolutely true you know i've been over the last month i've been watching a lot of the americans and uh i had not seen that whole show and so you know i've binged many seasons of it and that that's the same thing i've been sort of it, it was a curious sort of uh, comparison to watch this movie in the middle of watching that show where, um, you know, we're, we're using that perspective to really demonstrate the links to which we will go to hurt one another, uh, and how that's changed over, you know, eight decades. Truly. Yeah. I, I just find it fascinating that there was this time that, that people kind of acted this way in in wartime. And I think that's really what Renoir was getting at here is that, you know, and, and it, it comes through several times. Obviously, there's the scope of the war and France and Germany. And I mean, we have some Americans, there's a lot of different soldiers, Russians that are all kind of in these various camps. We see a lot of them, we get a lot, not Americans, sorry, British soldiers, uh, there's a lot of these different people, but then we have the social class structure, right? We've got kind of the working man that we see in in the vast majority of them and the aristocracy. But Renoir is also saying, you know what, but we're all human. And that's that's really what it is. So he really was trying to make a story that's really humanistic that says, you know what, there is this human uh, kind of this humanity that we all share that allows us to say, you know what, when you 
put all this other stuff aside. And this is something that I've always struggled with in the film, but I think it really started connecting with me this time when we have Marshall and Rosenthal end up at this woman's house at the end of the film and almost kind of create this this sense of family, even though they don't speak the same language, um, they're on different sides. But here they are able to just let all that go. Uh, you know, she's lost her husband and three of her brothers all to various wars. And they've escaped prison and they're on the run through the German countryside. And here they have this moment at Christmas time where they're just allowed to be human. And nothing else matters. And it's it's a very touching and tender um, last act of the film that kind of says, you know what, if we can get past all of that, and if we can just kind of not worry so much about that, and just realize, hey, they're all just other humans here, it's going to allow us all to just kind of find a way to get along and create a better world for ourselves. And I mean, I, I, it's interesting because I think he makes this film saying all of that while also acknowledging that, you know, there are these machinations working that kind of keep this thing running and we're never going to actually get there. You know, social class may be changing. The aristocracy may be falling um, and, you know, you know, our, our two aristocrats kind of realize that. But at the same time, um, you know, this whole machine of war that is kind of run by the the governments is always going to be a thing. If we can get through it by being uh, by being human and creating those relationships, yeah, it absolutely is uh, the message of the film. And you're right. It's such an interesting thing to look at through today's perspective and say, the exact same thing applies online. The exact same thing applies. Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, whatever it is, there's a way to kind of look at it and go, this is a message that is relevant today. And this film is is showing us that. Uh, well, I mean, look, even at the relationship that he portrays, and, and you've already sort of mentioned it, the Baudelieu and, and Rothenstein relationship, right? We have two colonels who are um, you know, in place of uh, of power in their particular outfits, right? He, we have Beaulieu who in the the prison camp is is you know treated with the respect of rank, and Rothenstein is obviously the head of that camp. And we have these wonderful exchanges where Rothenstein gets to communicate just how brave he and uh, he thinks it is that these guys come to his camp having attempted escape. Right. Mm -hmm. That that it is that uh, perspective that I, I would have done the same thing had I been in your shoes. That was a brave thing to try to do. You're not going to get away from it here. You're not going to be able to <laughs> do what you think you're going to be able to do here. I have a, a, a special place for you. Uh, and that, of course, launches the, the, the camp escape narrative for us in the second half of the movie but we also it also takes us to the to the end of the film where these two guys have to sort of face off one is running and one is uh is pulling the trigger and we get to see just how hard that is how that's demonstrated uh you know on screen as a thing that is difficult for Rothenstein to do to draw his weapon on this guy knowing that he both respects it and has to do his his duty. I thought that was very powerful. Absolutely. Although, although, and this is the conflict, right? Simple, right? 
like it it's a it, it, that I think is is part of the conflict that I feel about the movie that it is all done in a way that I find really beautiful and respectful and also perhaps this is the heart of the conflict around the movie it is it it has been so distilled the, these relationships and so simplified that I I uh, it's easy for me to see why, um, you know, this this is kind of grist for the mill of cultural conflict. I, I think there's a lot to all of that. And I think it also speaks to the fact that, you know, here we have Bourdieu, who has, I, I feel like he has kind of recognized it. It pops up several times in his conversations between him and Marischal. Where, I mean, they have a lot of beautiful moments together where they're, they're very little, um, little spoken, but you can get a lot of, uh, from what just their looks and that they're kind of sharing. Boldio seems to kind of have realized his place as an aristocrat. I mean, you know, we hear he has, uh, Rosenthal, this, this, uh, Jewish, uh, prisoner who, He's kind of this nouveau riche who's, you know, he, his family has bought all these old castles and everything that he's talking about. And Boldieu is somebody who's an aristocrat who was kind of from that world, but now that's on the decline. And I think he sees it. And I think that's what is an interesting moment um, playing that moment between him and Raufenstein um, that, you know, he's recognizing it. And maybe Raufenstein isn't quite ready to recognize that the aristocracy is kind of on its way down. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that Bourdieu uh, kind of triggers him to use as a, a kind of as the reason why he makes that decision to kind of mm-hmm. stand up for Marischal and Rosenthal so they can escape while he's doing his. Well, right. Nobody in their merry band would have been a better foil for the distraction, right? That's the exactly. whole illusion. That is the grand illusion, is to have this aristocrat and colonel make a big fuss and climb out of the, on the terrace and run across the rocks and attempt an escape, knowing full well that he's not going to be able to succeed. There are just too many soldiers, and it's too difficult uh, terrain uh, to be able to do that quickly and, and get out. But he's also cleared the way for these guys who have woven together fabric and made their own road to actually take the one way out and uh, climb out the the window and and scale the 120 foot uh you know facade of the castle and and make their way to safety and that starts the the sort of the last major run to the end of this movie which is the relationship of these two guys as you already mentioned their relationship with Elsa as they uh, you know try to get out of Germany yeah. um Another interesting bit, right, where we have them now we're we're dealing with this sort of the the depths of of suffering and interpersonal friendship where we have to say, you know, here's a guy with an injury. Here are these two guys who now are totally sick of each other. And again, it's it's a beautiful relationship, but it's also been distilled and simplified so many times that, um, uh, you know, this is the part of the film that I I found myself um, a little bit fatigued. I feel like we've I, I'd already gotten it, uh, and and their escape I think could have been uh, a little bit more abbreviated. I'm not sure that that uh, it, it makes the feel the film feel so much more um, stuffed uh, to add this whole additional uh, character, this whole additional arc uh, that I feel like was too short to be fully realized and. And too long to to be um, 
to add much to the actual escape. But she gets second billing, critical, <laughs> which is weird, right? Do you have any like where does that oh, even come from? I don't. I don't know. I'm just assuming that Dita Parlo uh, was the bigger name at the time. You know, I, I'm, that's just yeah. kind of my guess. Um, Word uh, is that yeah. Orson Welles deeply wanted Dita Parlo to play uh, Kurtz's mistress in Heart of Darkness, which hmm. is, um, quote, the greatest film he never got to make, uh, Orson Welles. Um, my name is Dita. I'll be your mistress tonight. <laughs> Dita, she, Dita uh, also inspired Madonna uh, for her erotica character. Just oh, that's a little side there you note. Go. Yeah, there you go. I, I didn't. I didn't see much of a hint of that character in this movie. <laughs> uh, maybe more in the actress than in this performance. <laughs> yeah, it, well, and you know, it's interesting. Just going back to your point, though, I did find that same feeling. Uh, I always had watching this film up until this latest viewing when the ending finally kind of clicked in place for me. And then I was like, really like, I don't know. I just found it really worked. It it kind of brought everything together for me in that final, that final part of the film. And so, um, but I totally but get how, how so like where, what was it that shifted? Because you know how I delight in, in our banter when you tell me that I just haven't watched the film enough times. That's right, I know. Hey, you know, and, and clearly you haven't watched all these other films too, so. Clearly, I come some... at an obvious deficit. <laughs> you know, I don't, it was just, there's something about, I mean, I, I feel like I had always struggled with this whole thing where it's just like, it, it, we've got this great prison uh, kind of POW camp film that kind of evolves to a prison escape film and then all of a sudden it kind of takes this this break as they have this kind of relationship at the end and it just it always seemed kind of like this odd pause before we get to the the uh the kind of the final moments of the film and so i I don't know i i guess this time it was just i i felt a lot more of the relationship like i felt with marishal and and his escape and everything that that he had kind of seen um Bourdieu, like, like I think it was because he and Bourdieu have all these looks at the end where Marshall, when Bourdieu says he's not coming, he's going to be the one who kind of is the distraction. And he and Marshall have a number of looks about kind of everything that is about to take place. I just find that their relationship, like Marichal is recognizing something in Bourdieu that what Bourdieu is giving to him as kind of this, this, uh, you know, he's recognizing him as somebody who is more than, uh, like he's the guy who's worth saving, not necessarily Bourdieu, who is the aristocrat. And normally you'd say the aristocrat is the one who would see himself as the one more worth saving than kind of the low worker. And I just find, I found this time that Marshall kind of recognizes that Bourdieu is seeing something in him and there's this humanity that he kind of pulls from that. And then when he ends up in this, in this house with this, with Elsa and her daughter, I don't know, I just found like he kind of took that humanity and recognized it as something that he allowed to kind of 
create this relationship with. And he had this like, they had this like pseudo family Christmas with everybody kind of celebrating and everything with their little um, manger scene and everything. And it just, it, I don't know, I guess it was just this connection to the the human side that I felt like Marachal maybe hadn't connected with until those moments with Bourdieu. And then this was his chance to kind of show that to us. So that's, I think, why it worked so much more for me this time. Uh, you know, I totally get the intention of that. I, f- I can feel that in the movie. It It is, I, it, it got me feeling like if, if, if we saw this, this part of the film, this last, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the film blown up to three hours, we would have had the immigrants, right? I mean, it's just, that's, that's where the, the heart and soul of this farmland family experience lives. And uh, I thought it was, I thought it was fine as a coda to the film. And we needed to have, I think, something, I think there's something about their, these two guys and their experience crossing the countryside and having to, you know, look out for patrols and that sort of thing. Um, I, I was surprised that we had so little of that experience in this last little bit. We had one where they were scared when the there was a knock on the window and the happiest German soldier peeks in <laughs> and says, how far to the next town? Oh, well, it's about eight miles. Eight miles? My, oh, my. I better get walking. <laughs> That's right. So I found that like those kinds of moments were uh, like, I, I think that's a high point in my experience of simplicity of this film. I get what it's trying to do. I see it. But when you have those sorts of exchanges uh, that that have sucked all of the potential threat out of their hiding out of the chase, uh, I think it loses some of the weight. And I'm just not sure, at least in my first watch, uh, I'm just not sure that their, you know, family time Christmas candles on the tree uh, actually makes up for what I needed in the climax of the film. Sure. I can see that. Like I said, I was right there with you. Were you were you more were were you more terrified for them, for example, about them being discovered by the Germans, or about the fact that oh my god, it just came back to me that in the olden days you would actually put real candles on the tree, and that terrified me. That's an extraordinary fire hazard. Blow them out. Right, right. So. <laughs> That was that was troublesome. That was pretty funny. Let's talk just briefly about Jean Renoir, can we? Let's. He says that he was very concerned with realism. His words to the point. Indeed, I need. I asked Gabin to wear my old pilot's tunic, which I had kept after being demobilized. At the same time, I did not hesitate to add fanciful touches to certain details in order to heighten the effect. For example, von Stroheim's uniform, his part which at first was a very minor one, had been greatly enlarged because I was afraid that confronted by the weighty personalities of Gabin and Fresnay, he would look like a lightweight. In art, as in life, it is all a question of balance, and the problem is to keep both sides of the scales level. Uh, what do we know of Jean Renoir's filmmaking? What do we, um, how does he stand for you as a realistic filmmaker? 
Well, I mean, that's always been the description that I've I've heard of him and and seen in his films. Everything is portrayed very realistically. If you look at this film, you look at Rules of the Game, anything that he's done, it very much has kind of this sense that uh, you know, what's in the space is in the space. But I think something that always has been important to Renoir that you definitely see in this film and you can it's so clear to me after rewatching this several times recently how uh, filmmakers like Wes Anderson have really pulled from him as a model in how he tells his stories. Um, he's a filmmaker who views the world as not specifically like what's inside this four by three window is the world. And if it's not in that frame, then it doesn't exist. Uh, I mean, we've talked about that in a number of films that where, you know, if it's in there, then it's obviously something that's, you know, important. He is a filmmaker who sees the world as this big palette, and and we're just seeing this little tiny window um, of it. And you see it quite a bit as he's panning a lot of camera moves throughout this film, as he's kind of panning and and exploring things. And things are happening on screen and off screen that are relevant. And the way that he allows the real world to just kind of always be there, and we're only seeing a part of it, I think, is is a critical part of his filmmaking style. The way that he puts films together. And uh, like I said, I mean, geez, you look at Wes Anderson's movies, it's just, he really pulled that stamp from Renoir as to how how the films are made. I think that it's, um, I, I don't know, I guess I just find that there is very much a sense of the, the real world and the way that things happen. It, it just all feels very much in kind of this particular style of filmmaking. Yeah, I think so too. And I think I, I love that description that you give of his work. He's, uh, uh, you know, to hear him talk about this movie specifically, uh, you know, I, I he says, I took my characters into a POW camp. This too was a special kind of life, a life of luxury compared to that of the infantrymen in the trenches. I had no wish to depict the latter's sufferings. That was not the intention of this film. My chief aim was the one which I have been pursuing ever since I started to make films, to express common humanity of men. And that, I think, is, I, I absolutely get that out of this film. I, I see he has, he set himself at an intention, and he nailed it. And I can absolutely also see why that pisses people off, because in the form of, you know, cinema verite, right, in the form of, of coming to experience, allowing film to be a window into the senses, uh, this is not what we would expect. What he achieved is not what we would expect as a prison camp experience. And that disconnect opens a fairly wide door to criticism of what Renoir actually accomplished. Not only that, he made a film about World War I that never shows a trench, never shows a battle. It's like, you know, the the only time we actually have have uh, kind of any actual battling or attacking is right. all off screen when Marischal's plane is shot down. We He leaves and then we got to to Raffenstein coming back saying, "Hey, I just shot this plane down. Let's go find out if they're if they're uh, captains, and then uh, invite them to dinner if they are." And that's kind of that's that's the sense of his story, right? It's not about the war, and I think right. that also made people say, "You know, there was a lot of horror that happened in that war, and you're going to show people having." 
tea and, you know, <laughs> being all polite and everything. And I think yeah. it did make some people upset, but, uh, but because I, again, he makes the, he makes the experience of war an inconvenience. Yes. And, and that is a, that is a real challenge of the movie. I, well, I think, yeah, I, I still ended up overall enjoying my time with it. Uh, but, but I, I see it's, confusion and i mean again especially because this is right on the heels of world war ii getting started and so it's very much in people's minds that fascism was on the rise and here we have these these french soldiers sitting down and 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 playing nice with these german soldiers and it just it it yeah it, it was a little frustrating for people i mean i think it got banned in um france and it got taken from france it got banned in germany Italy and uh, maybe it was also banned in France. I can't remember, but a number of places it got banned. And we're lucky the print survived. I mean, somehow the an original negative was uh, was kept by somebody who knew what it was. And uh, I think it was actually a German who 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 realized what he had and and enjoyed the movie. This was after Germany had taken it and actually uh, smuggled it out to Moscow, where it was held for a very long time. And they finally realized what it was. And they were working with a French company, um, a restoration company. And the two of them kind of were exchanging prints. And uh, the French company got it in the 60s, but they didn't even realize it was the original negative until the 90s. So it was it's amazing that this film that we have what we have now considering the journey that it went on a superficial aside Mm -hmm. did you notice anything funny about the credits um (laughs) well a few things one i really like the credits how that it's kind of this like they're falling. I, I thought that was a really cool, cool. Uh, design yeah. technique. But um, specifically, what are you referring to in the credits? Well, Andy, <laughs> every name was one name. Not every right? name. But every Google. name. It felt like every name. There was a Not, lot of names. Uh, be, because of names. It, it's like they're all Chardet and Madonna. We have <laughs> uh, we have Carette. Uh, Julian Corette was listed as just Corette. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georges Peclet was just listed as Peclet. Right. Uh, Jean Daste was just listed as Daste. Right. Uh, Sylvain uh, Itkin was just Itkin. Modo Dalio, Marcel Dalio, our old friend, mm-hmm. uh, uh, was just listed as Dalio. But let's we get down into the credits. The editors were single name editors. <laughs> Hugh Guay uh, and Marguerite uh, were both listed as single names. Same thing with production design. Eugene Lurier was just uh, Lurier. Uh, Decre for costume design, just one name. They're all Chardet. Uh, I found that extraordinary. What kind of pool of talent and ego does Renoir put together to get a credits list like this? <laughs> what was the trend that we were seeing in 19, late 1930s? I just, I just imagine it. It's like uh, this is going to be the probably the first time this this has been um, brought into conversation when we talk about Grand Illusion. But when you look at Three Amigos, <laughs> you have the moment <laughs> when the poor woman from the Mexican village is sending a telegram to the Three Amigos and doesn't quite have enough money to pay for every word. Um, they just uh, start cutting words <laughs> out of the letter to, until they finally get to the letter that she can afford. Maybe. 
Pete, just maybe the uh, French titleists were charging by the word and, and Renoir was using up his budget and said, you know what? I just can't afford paying for all those words. So just cut each of the names, the, these names in half. You know, I didn't see that at first, but you're absolutely right. I'm sure it was budgetary. Uh, okay. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about specifically uh, in the cast? Well, I, I mean, we do. We should talk. I mean, I don't think we've talked specifically about the cast. Uh, Jean Gabin is just. I, I think he has just. Gosh, he's just a movie star right there. I tell you, uh, just got has the face. I mean, fantastic actor. Um, I've seen him only in a couple films, but I just I really love his screen presence. Um, and he's he's Marischal, and I think I, I think he just he carries the humanity I think really well for that particular well, especially character. when he's when he's ripped apart you know that we do have this this bit where he's he's been separated uh, yeah. the escapes of Marischal you know early come to the fore here and I think right. watching his interaction with the prisoners inside gives us a when little bit of a yeah, sense when he's of in that solitary. again yeah that humanity um, the humanity of men exactly he's sort of the the vessel for that. Yeah, you don't see people in modern day prison films sitting down with compassion with the prisoners in solitary, giving them a harmonica and cigarettes. Uh, we already talked about Dita Parlo, um, Pierre Fresnay as Bourdieu. I think uh, it's funny because you see an actor like him, and uh, I don't know. I just like, oh, of course he's going to play the aristocrat. He looks like an aristocrat. He looks like born <laughs> with a silver pipe in his mouth. Right. If there's ever an actor who is born. Well, I should say this actually about Eric von Stroheim. If there's ever an actor who's yes. born to be wearing a monocle, it's him. <laughs> and a neck and chin brace. <laughs> right, for his uh, spinal injury. Oh, And that actually leads to another interesting costuming choice from uh, Renoir, right? The idea was that, you know, the way he talks about Stroheim's or Ruffenstein's uh, uh, costume was that, you know, he enlarged it. He also put those sorts of affectations uh, on it and... It, you know, like the brace, it was all stuff to to give him such a sort of outsized, unrealistic presence next to Fresnay's uh, Bourdieu, so that they would, so that again, he would balance the scales. Those choices are not necessarily in line with Renoir's realism. They are um, explicit choices to balance the scales on screen. And nowhere can you see it better than when these two characters are sitting together in the bay window and, uh, you know, having a cigarette together, whatever. You see them side by side and you can actually, you can weigh the measure of these men next to one another in this, uh, you know, in these these specific shots, and I think it's particularly artful and strong. His character, Raufenstein, I feel like is a character that I have known about my whole life without ever having seen him until, well, at least until college. But like that kind of military character with the stiff neck brace uh, because of the spinal injury, with the monocle. I mean, I, I can't think of anything specific, but I feel like... I mean, there have to be like Looney Tunes kind of spoof characters that had that style, right? It just, it's that, there's something about the embodiment of that particular character that feels like something that we've all seen many times since in other oh. forms. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, it's I, I wanted uh, so badly to see, um, you know, to see him with his arm in some sort of mechanical brace because he felt like he's right out of Young Frankenstein, right? I mean, he was... Young Fr- or uh, Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. I think, uh, um, you know, it's absolutely Inspector... What was his name? Inspector uh, Kemp? Is it Inspector Kemp? Mm. Um Anyway, I think that's you're right. This he he created a caricature that has lived decades hence. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is Eric von Stroheim. We haven't even talked about really him as a person, but I mean, mm-hmm. silent film director, just classic great silent film director who you know had some budgetary issues with kind of going over on some uh, of his projects and and spending a little more than he should and so ended up kind of having troubles with the uh, the studio system but i mean he had made some incredible classics including greed and then and also was acting in a lot of his own films and just a lot of other films that he would pop up in like this um we see him much later popping up in um uh, Sunset Boulevard, right? And I, I think that he is, uh, he's an actor who, um, knew how to work with actors and knew how to give a lot to scenes because he had directed so much great stuff. I, I just love seeing him in this film and just really anytime he's on screen. Um, greed was that, was the, that was the one that ended up having the, like the 12 hour cut. Is that right? Something did like that. Did that ever get released? Something like that. You know, they did a restoration of the film. I can't remember, honestly, how long the um, the main version that, like, I saw in film school and stuff, there was a version that was probably two hours long, something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, AMC did a... Um, or they played it. I don't know if, if they put it together, but there was a director's cut that, I don't know if it's fair calling it a director's cut, a restored version that was probably closer to three or four hours. And what they did when they put that together is they used lots of production stills and script and stuff to kind of oh, piece sure. it together. It was, I you know, I watched it. It was not a great experience because you're just like, it's almost like a film school watch, right? You're like, okay, okay, so this is what should be here. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting experiment, but, um, you know, unless the film is, uh, I mean, we, we kind of saw some of this when we watched the Judy Garland version of a star yeah. is born where they inserted a lot of that sort of stuff. And it makes for a difficult watch. It pulls you out because all of a sudden you're very much learning about it instead of actually watching a film. Well, I gave it too much. It looks like the, the original cut, his original cut was seven hours long and nobody ever saw it. Yeah. So <clears throat> the, Looks like the four-hour quote restored cut is the best you could possibly do. Yeah, right, right. That's that's what AMC was playing for a while. But it, but at least it answers the question: Why Eric von Stroheim has budget problems? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Ran All into right. that quite a bit with his <laughs> with his films. <laughs> oh, Eric. Uh, so. Okay, so who else did you want to talk about? Uh, we have the the merry band of criminals uh, and Rosenthal. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that they all are are great actors. I enjoy all of them in their roles. I don't think I've seen any of them in anything else. Um, none of them stand out as as um, you know better than the others. I think they all work really well in their roles. Camera Christian Matras. 
uh, Eugene Lurier and production design. I think they they did a, a tremendous job, uh, especially for 1938. And especially how Renoir wanted to move the camera. There were some beautiful right. camera moves throughout this Truly. film. Some great ones that were like, you're, you're watching something happen outside as people are talking, and then the camera trucks backward, and all of a sudden you've gone through a window, and now you're in yeah. an interior scene. Some just fantastic use of that. And this is back in the 30s when they needed a lot more light to kind of balance the two. I just was really impressed with what they pulled off here. It was incredibly sophisticated, especially when they're on and, uh, you know, up in and below these trellises. Uh, once we make it to the final castle, incredibly just uh, mature use of space. Uh, I thought it was really terrific. I think it was, uh, it, it's worth watching you know, once you watch the film, enjoy the film for whatever, but really pay attention to what he is able to do with the camera because it's um, it's um, it's really great. Yeah. It's a masterclass. It really is. Truly. <clears throat> and the music, Joseph Cosma composed the music and this the there are, are some just fantastic uh, moments where I feel like the music just works really well in context of what we're watching. Mm -hmm. um, I just I really enjoy the score for this particular one. I feel like we need to do at least a uh, the some sort of I don't know what we're going to brand this segment but it should be a branded segment where you get to actually talk now about how it lines up with the other films from this particular year since you've done all that homework. Boy, I tell you, and this was back when the Academy Award uh, Best Picture pool was rather large. Ten nominees in these early years before they started shrinking it. And, um, you know, by the time we get to the end of this, we'll be back up quite high again. Um, but in this, <laughs> Sorry. In this particular case, uh, there were ten nominees. Um, the ten nominated films were The Adventures of Robin Hood. Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Jezebel, Pygmalion, Test Pilot, and You Can't Take It With You, um, including, of course, Grand Illusion. So I watched all of these films. We've actually talked about uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood on the show. Mm -hmm. We talked about it mm -hmm. a year ago in our Robin Hood series. This is, of course, Boy, Michael Curtiz's. That it was a lot of Robin Hood. Uh, yeah, that was the Michael Curtiz one, which I think um, arguably is is toward the top of our mm -hmm. list of the Robin Hood films. Um, Alexander's Ragtime Band is kind of a, a biopic about a, a guy and his band. Um, it's it was I don't know. Watching through all these, it really struck me that this was definitely a different period as far as what people were getting really excited about. Um, Boys Town, Spencer Tracy is it's another biopic about a um, a father who, uh, as in a, a Catholic father, who starts up basically kind of a place for uh, young boys to live who have uh, been kicked out or run away from their families and and um a young a young mickey rooney is a kid that he's trying to help the citadel is a story about a doctor who is it, it's a it's an interesting look at the medical system at the time really kind of shocking the way that the medical system worked back then uh, that's largely what that is four daughters is a father and his four daughters and kind of the the romances and everything going on with them oh God, which can you even imagine Oh, I know. I can't. God. <laughs> and that spurred, that film was so popular, it spurred um, Four Wives and then I think Four Mothers, I think are the three films in that particular series. Jezebel, um, Betty Davis, uh, is a Southern Belle uh, with Henry Fonda as the man she falls for. And she's just a 
she is a little stinker, that Betty Davis in that particular <laughs> film. It wasn't a film that I was in love with. It was okay. Pygmalion, uh, you know, anyone familiar with the play or the musical version of it that uh, would certainly popularize it um, with Henry Higgins. Um, it, you know, it, that is a story that endlessly frustrates me, but I know a lot of people love it. And then Test Pilot is uh, Clark Gable as a test pilot. This was an interesting story. I'd, I'd never even heard of this one. It's about a guy who's a test pilot in in planes who you had to have a guy testing these planes to see if they would do what they're supposed to do. And he would have to put these planes to these insane tests and try to not die and eject in time and stuff. And it's like, wow. That was the thing people did back then. Sounds like a tr- just a horrible job. Right? Okay. Right. Um, and then, of course, you can't take it with you. The Frank Capra uh, classic based on the play, um, which is, you know, just about making your life worth it. And, uh, you know, goofy families uh, and Jimmy Stewart. It's a strong... Uh, for the time list of films, but it's interesting looking at all of them, how just why you don't hear people talking about the vast majority of these films. Pygmalion always, I mean, Criterion has that in its collection. It's always kind of one that people talk about. A lot of the others, they'll pop up in like, you know, best of 20th Century Fox sorts of lists and things like that. But I, I don't see a lot of push for those particular films other than The Adventures of Robin Hood um, and this. And, you know, I don't know, You Can't Take It With You is the film that won Best Picture in this particular year. And before my recent several rewatches of this film, I would probably have said that that was the right case. It was the the better film. It's a very fun film. It's a very heart-filled, emotional kind of Frank Capra movie. Um, but I don't know, after rewatching this several times, I would say, you know, I would give it to Grand Illusion at this point. And honestly... Some people might say Pygmalion, but other than that, and you know, the Adventures of Robin Hood, I just there's nothing else on this list that I would put even close to the top. That's interesting. I wonder how much of it was a uh, related at all to that sort of burgeoning um, post-war xenophobia uh, that that there's no way a movie speaking German and French is going to win an award next to uh, all of these other nominees. Yeah. Well, I mean, the National Board of Review, they put it up as the best foreign film, and it was the, in their top foreign films list. Mm-hmm. And in their top films list, I mean, they really recognized the quality in this particular film. But if you look at a lot of the write-ups about the films nominated for Best Picture of the year, mm-hmm. it's interesting that Grand Illusion always is like, oh, and they nominated a foreign film this year. It, yeah, it, right, never, right. it never seems to uh, be a serious contender. Yeah, and there's nothing to say that a wide-eyed critic or organization of critics aren't going to really loud this film for what it is. But yeah. it does say that there is, you know, there is a a sort of again cultural sort of uh, barrier that we're that we're constantly dealing with. Like you talked about in your opening uh, discussion, that um, you know, two percent of all of the films. Uh, yeah. does, does not make a weighty representation of foreign language films. Uh, obviously, Oscars uh, over the years have other problems, too. Right. <laughs> it's not just getting non-English films uh, in, in the list, but goodness, having more non-English films, yeah. it goes a long way toward rectifying some of the, the women and people of color problems that they have yeah. in the awards list. So 
Yeah. Now, granted, uh, I mean, it, it was all white guys in this particular film. Too. Exactly. Just, that was not. That was not terribly friend. helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but other awards. I mean, like I said, National Board of Review, uh, Best Foreign Film, Best Acting. Uh, they w- gave it that. The New York Film Critics Circle, uh, Best Foreign Language Film, and then interestingly, the Venice Film Festival. Um, they they actually snuck this in right before things shifted in Italy and the film was banned. Um, they re- awarded Jean Renoir with the best overall artistic contribution with his film, and um, they nominated it for the best film, best foreign film, which is the Mussolini Cup, and. <laughs> With all of that, they didn't. They didn't. I guess feel that it could win that particular thing. That's why they gave him that other award that they kind of snuck in before um, they weren't allowed to do things like that. So, how to do in the box office? I'm I'm excited to hear just how much information you have. Well, you know, Pete, for an 83-year-old foreign film, it is ridiculous how much financial information is available out there for this. Let me tell you. <laughs> Just kidding. There's really nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I... I read the, I read just the first slide of your notes earlier today, and I thought, "Oh wow, this is going to be amazing! Yeah, right. This is amazing. This is the first time we actually have budget." Uh, you, no, no. Jerk. yeah, there's really nothing there. You know, there is some box office information <laughs> for several re-releases here, uh, but nowhere is it clear which re-release, like what year, which country. Um, so I, I just left it all empty because it's just, it's hard to say. I, I did, however, find this in the book Inside Oscar, uh, which is all about the Academy Awards. So they had this to say, for a foreign language film, Grand Illusion did spectacularly well in the U.S., but it couldn't compare to the box office grosses of the latest Frank Capra peon to individualism. You can't take it with you. So that's all I have. Uh, it did well right. in the United States, but not as well as Capra's film. Um, all I can really tell you other than that is that it was released in France June 8th, 1937, then finally here in the United States September 12th, 1938. Well, that's something. That is something. You know, it was a good experience. It was a good one to start out with. I'm I'm excited about uh, seeing where it stands uh, on our uh, respective uh, lists here. Should we take it to the mat? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see all of the movies that we have talked about on this very show. Uh, if you want, you can swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart, and it should take you straight to this film. Uh, in our list where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. It's been a long time since I've done that. It has been. I don't remember words that go after <laughs> one another. First up, Grand Illusion or La Caja Fall? La Caja Fall. Really? Wow. Yeah. Grand Illusion. All right. Uh, let's was, do it. He was terrible to his, his husband in that film. Oh, uh, you're right. You can have it. Grand Again, I just, I just don't have to be that surprised. I I enjoy this movie, but I don't know that I'm, you know. Yeah, you haven't seen it multiple times like I have. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Grand Illusion or Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing. Grand Illusion or Arsenic and Old Lace. Your favorite um. Cary Grant mugging vehicle. <laughs> I'd like to see Eric von Stroheim pull some of those faces. <laughs> I'll give it to Grand Illusion. Grand Illusion, indeed. Grand Illusion or the Night of the Hunter. Ooh. Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter. <laughs> Grand Illusion or the Born Identity. Born Identity. I am going to say Grand Illusion. If it was one of the other two, I might have picked them over it. 
and notice I said two, not five. <laughs> kind of forgetting those last last if two. If it born was films. the hit Jeremy Renner vehicle, <laughs> born again. <laughs> oh, it was a uh, grand illusion for me. So we're gonna have to Rochambeau it. Okay. All right, ready? One, One two, two, three. three papers. Scissors. All right. Grand illusion takes it. Grand illusion or the silent partner. Hmm. Um, I'll give it to Grand Illusion. I will give it to Grand Illusion. Grand Illusion or Contagion? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, idea vehicle, Grand Illusion with a little bit more disease. <laughs> they have a great conversation about disease. Can I just say, I loved that line in the film. <laughs> Let me see. I wrote it down because I thought it was so great. Because speaking of class, we'd each die of our own class ailment if war didn't make all germs equal. <laughs> right. I'm glad they were able to throw that, that bit of humanity in. <laughs> I'm going with Grand Illusion. All right. Um, that's fine. Okay. Grand Illusion or the Adventures of Robin Hood. Oh, duking it out in 1938. Adventures of Robin Hood. I will say Grand Illusion. Oh, really? <laughs> I thought you were. Oh, I guess you've already said. I have. Okay, already you know said. what? I'm. I'll give that to you. You can have that. <laughs> okay. I don't. I I, we've reached the point where I just don't care. That's right. <laughs> oh, finally, after four hundred some episodes, <laughs> we finally hit that point. Uh, Grand Illusion or Judo? Judo. <laughs> I will say Grand Illusion. Here we go. <laughs> really. Okay. Fine. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's fine. It's yeah. fine. I, I'm, it. I'm, I'm torn there, but they're, you know, it's, I'm happy to give it to you. We're like, you know, this is pretty much the I don't last want ranking. your charity. Okay, here we charity. go then. <laughs> One, One, two, two three, three, rock. Hmm. All right. Judo takes it. You're welcome, Judo! <laughs> Grand Illusion ended up at spot 146 on our chart. 146 out of 461 films. That puts it at a 68%. Well, that's something. That's pretty low. <laughs> okay. All right. How did it do on your uh, personal list? This went uh, pretty high on my personal list. It landed in spot 555 out of 4,424 films, putting it at about 87%. Man, it turns out that both the numerator and the denominator are important because it's we're pretty close. Mine ended up at 458, but only out of 1,458 films. Mm -hmm. And so that puts it at 69%, Andy, mm. which is exactly where I feel like it should be. I feel great <laughs> about that. Uh, it, if I were to use that same math uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, Flickchart suggests that should be a three and a half star film. I'm going to nudge it up and give it a four star and a heart. Uh, but that feels feels like I felt when I watched this movie. Solid. I enjoyed it. Would watch it again. A little bit simple. You know, we. I, I want to jump back real quick, Pete, now that you're giving it a ranking. Of the 10 films that we talked about um, that were nominated, have you seen, I, I know you've seen The Adventures of Robin Hood. Have you seen You Can't Take It With You, the movie that won? Yes. And I'm assuming you haven't seen the other seven. I have not. Wait a minute. Let me get back. There. Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Jezebel, Pygmalion, Test Pilot. I'm sure I've seen Pygmalion, but I could not. Uh, I could not tell you. Okay, Leslie Howard about it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I would have because we did the. It was one of those where we did the play in in high school, and I'm sure that we watched the movie. 
that's usually what people do. Yeah, when they're watch, doing a yep. play, they'll watch the movie too. Um, okay, well, of those, would you put "You Can't Take It With You" as the winner, or Robin Hood, or Pygmalion, or this? Yeah, I put. I'm I'm comfortable with "You Can't Take It With You." I feel like I don't have the research to say anything else. I'm surprised that uh, the way you talk about Test Pilot, man, I want to watch that. <laughs> but maybe it's a tricky one to find. Actually, I yeah. think I found that one on YouTube. I think somebody oh, had post- loaded it up there. I don't know if it's still there or not. Um, I'm a little surprised that that Boys Town doesn't. You don't hold that in higher esteem. I've heard good things about that. Um, yeah, it's fine. It's yeah. you know, yeah. No, but I'm. I would stick with you. Can't take it with you. And uh, especially after watching this, I thought it was. I thought it was. It was good. Um, doesn't live up to my memory of Yiktui. You can't take it with you, I will say, on my most recent rewatch of it. It definitely felt bloated. It felt really? way too long. Yeah, I just, I was like, you know, we could have cut a half hour out of this and it would have been fine. Um, huh. So I think that's really what what dropped it for me. But of the of the films, I mean, Grand Illusion, I think it's finally crested that point where it's become a five-star film for me. Um, I, my recent rewatches, it, it, it's slowly been going up. It was four and a half. And then this last time, it just like everything worked so I'm saying five stars in a heart from from me. So there it is. Wow. And That's I'm ha- I, I would I would have said this is the one that should have won over. You can't take it with you. But in the past, I always said you can't take it with you was the best. So uh, like I feel like those two films really exemplify um, a great example of the films that came out that year. Adventures yeah. of Robin Hood. I don't know. It's it's a great film, I guess. And I can't remember, honestly, from our conversation about it. Um, but I just I don't feel like it was the one I would have picked ever, even though I think <laughs> yeah, it's no. a great film. Yeah. I, but it'd be the equivalent of like picking fast and the furious. <laughs> well, I'd say maybe, maybe more um, like, you know, the dark Knight or, yeah. Okay. Or, I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, Inception or something, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like the cl- crowd pleaser. It's the crowd pleaser. That's exactly yeah. what it is. So yeah. that's fine. All right. So we got that. We've kicked it off. We have started the, the series. Where do we go from here? Well, yeah, now that we are finally getting this ball rolling, we're going to be jumping a number of years. We're going to be going to 1969 with the French film Z. Uh, Technically, it's kind of a French-Greek film or Algerian-French. This is a political thriller directed by Costa Gavras um, based on a novel, and it is about uh, the events surrounding an assassination of a a Greek politician. and uh, yeah, so that's where we'll be going to next. And this is this is I will say this is an example of the film that now that in 1957 they started the uh, best foreign language film category. Okay, um, this is going to be our first example, and now we can start talking about this moving forward of films that were nominated for best picture and best foreign language film and won best foreign language film because of the fact that it was nominated for both. Our first Parasite pick. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always do it. Oh, Andy, there are people who really don't like this movie. Yes, uh, there are some of of those out there. A few of them. They, mostly they don't like to read their movies. 
that's fine. They're upset about English. That's fine. We don't need to talk about that. But we do have some people who just genuinely don't like the movie. Would you like to open the bidding? I will, yes. I have Polsky777. Gives it a one star. Says, World War I soap opera. What's so great about this movie? Extended to two hours, and for that reason, boring. Contains indecent behavior, indecent jokes, and blasphemy against God Jehovah. That's a lot of capital letters right there in a row. There are. There are. My goodness, that's shout, intense. Shout to the wind. Intensity right there. Well, I have one from Mr. Know-It-All, who calls, in I think, a, a fit of play on wordery, he calls it a bland delusion. <laughs> Do you see what he did there? Oh, Mr. Know-It-All, uh, you, you should clearly be in all of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here we go. He said... Uh, at the risk of being ostracized by both the pretentious Cinema Know-It-All Society and the Woody Allen fan club. What? Mm. I must say that Grand Illusion is the hands-down winner in the category of most cosmically overrated piece of drack. Even in the face of stiff competition from all too deserving fellow nominees such as Pads of Glory, Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild Bunch, and Citizen Kane, these others, like G.I., get five-star ratings and are called classics or at least classics of their genre. The first three are just crap, and Kane, while very good, simply does not deserve the oohs and ahs and best film ever ranking it so often receives. But in the field of overratedness, they all pale in comparison and shrink to insignificance beside Renoir's contribution. It offers an overdone theme, unimaginative staging, a hackneyed script, and fourth-grade pageant acting. The combined effect is the 20th century's best answer to insomnia since Ambien. Donnez-moi une break. <laughs> oh, as, as you can imagine, <laughs> the, the, the Amazon community <laughs> has stepped in. And, okay, the, people feel pretty strongly. Mostly you can imagine they feel strongly for lumping this with Paths of Glory, Bonnie and Clyde, Wild Bunch, and Citizen Kane, all from different years. And But, but you know, we have S.S. Lewski who says, I don't applaud your courage for posting your honest opinion, as all opinions are not equal. Sad that you would review a film that's beyond your understanding. You're certainly not helping potential viewers. You're just announcing your ignorance in the grandest manner. For that, I do applaud you. Courageous indeed. <laughs> I like that somebody else actually looked at all of the films that Mr. Know-It-All has rated and found the two <laughs> highest praised films by him, Me, Myself, and Irene, five stars, and Vertical Limit, four and a half stars. <laughs> that is telling indeed. <laughs> oh, Mr. Uh, Know-It-All, you put yourself out there. You do. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. 
Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>